Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, missed opportunity. Why is Canada saying no to a public inquiry into alleged foreign interference by China? Plus, crisis at Surrey Memorial Hospital. An emergency room doctor speaks publicly with his firsthand account of what's occurring in BC's busiest emergency room. Plus, with the ferry chaos this past long weekend, we ask how much would a bridge to Vancouver Island actually cost taxpayers? That's coming up on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Special Rapporteur David Johnston told Canadians a public inquiry into foreign interference is not needed, but public hearings should be held. Uh, Mr. Johnston's initial report uh, looked into foreign interference allegations against China, including election meddling during the last two federal uh, campaigns. Now, Mr. Johnston found serious shortcomings in how intelligence from security agencies was communicated to government, but he didn't identify any instances where the Prime Minister negligently failed to act on intelligence uh, advice. Now, Mr. Johnson says a public inquiry, long called for by the opposition parties, could not be undertaken in public because of the sensitivity of the intelligence and formal subpoena powers are not required for him to hold his own hearings uh, with uh, Canadians, academics, political stakeholders, and of course, diaspora communities. Take a listen to what Mr. Johnson had to say. I recommend the Prime Minister invite the two oversight committees on national security, NSICOP and INSIRA, to review my conclusions and provide them with all supporting materials, including an annex which contains the classified information. If they disagree with my conclusions, they should say that. What has allowed me to determine whether there has in fact been interference cannot be disclosed publicly. A public review of classified intelligence simply cannot be done. Now, you could imagine opposition conservative leader Pierre Polyev immediately slammed uh, Mr. Johnson's recommendation, saying that it covers up Beijing's influence here in Canada. Take a listen. Well, conservatives are not buying it. We need a full public inquiry to get to the bottom of Beijing's interference in our democracy. And that's what I will deliver when I am prime minister. There will be a full public inquiry into this mess now, uh, Mr. Polyev uh, once again alleged that Mr. Johnson was compromised because he has family ties with Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Johnson's work is expected to continue through the end of October when he's due to present a final report to government. So lots to talk about here. Uh, joining me now is Nathan Vanderclip. He's an international correspondent with The Globe and Mail and a former Beijing bureau chief for The Globe uh, as well. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, were you surprised by the uh, recommendation? I, I was, and I, th- I think many people were. I think uh, given the scale and seriousness of some of the things that we've come to understand in the last few months, given what seemed to be the near uniform desire for some form of public inquiry among the public at the very least, it, it seemed as if this was um, was where we we're going to go. I mean, David Johnston himself said he went into this saying that he was leaning in that direction, but that's clearly not how he's come down today. 
My sense of it is that we've missed a moment here uh, that it allowed us to pivot in regards to our, our uh, uh, in regards to foreign affairs and how we speak to pa- the Asia Pacific, uh, in regards to how our agencies deal with uh, our, our security agencies deal with elected officials and how government views the world in 2023. It almost seems like there's a missed mark here. Whether you agree with what China's doing or not, or or believe what China's doing, at the end of the day, it does allow us to have a thorough conversation. As Canadians to say, where are we today and where are we headed? Well, it, it feels to me like there's there's two major questions here. You know, one is you know how much can we trust the current government uh, to deal with foreign interference based on what has already happened, and the other is how can we as a country act against foreign interference? And I think what David Johnson is trying to say is that we can't in public, given security issues and all the rest discuss the first one. So let's move on and let's start to talk about how what we can do uh, in, in response, how, how we can act as a country. But the, the problem is I don't think those two questions are separate because the, the question of acting in the future against foreign interference comes down to a question of public trust. And, and I think you establish public trust by having accountability. And so and that's accountability not just for the sitting government, but also for Mr. Johnson himself. And I think by, by cutting off this public inquiry, I think it, it, it complicates the task of coming to some sort of solutions in the future because people just aren't going to find them credible. Mm-hmm. Um, what does this mean for the Liberals, do you, do you think? We're still, I mean, if, if, they, if this coalition holds, it's, we won't have a, a, a federal election until 2025. What do you think it means for the, for the present government? I mean, these things are hard to say. I I think the old truism is that uh, elections aren't fought on foreign affairs, and that has proven to be true time and time again. Does this rise to the level of something that would actually change the way people cast their ballots? I don't know. Um, But, uh, you know, in in the past, uh, that's not been something that, that has been a real motivator at the ballot box. Now, is this the sort of thing that causes the NDP to say, you know, let's go to the ballot boxes uh, with the possibility that that uh, creates an improved standing for the Conservatives? I mean, that, that's something that the NDP is going to have to look at very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any lessons to be learned from Australia, the UK, and some of our uh, allies in regards to how they have tackled this issue? I mean, the obvious one is the foreign agent registry, right? And that's, that's mm-hmm. something that's been discussed here for, for, for a number of years. That's something that Australia has brought in. I, th- I think there is another element of this that might be worth looking at, too, which is that Australia has taken some actions that were um, primarily directed against their concerns about Chinese influence there. Those actions caused quite a hostile response from Beijing. But there was, And I think that sort of response is the sort of thing that we have uh, had fear of from Ottawa, from our own government. There's been, there's been a fear to sort of uh, create trade sanctions against Canadian companies and the like. Um, but Australia has also shown in the last in the last number of months that the Australian trade minister was in China, and 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 that that relationship, from an economic perspective, anyways, is, is recovering. So th- those sorts of things, that, that that punishment that I think is much feared, often doesn't last terribly long. Mm-hmm. And and that's the the thing that I have great difficulty with. I mean, Australia did get pushback, but they fundamentally drew a line in the sand, or certainly my sense of it sitting here in Canada, drew a line in the sand and saying, this this will not happen. This is who we are. This is what we represent. And we will not tolerate a your influence or your attempt at influencing uh, our, our uh, domestic politics, threatening of our citizens. Uh, I, I'm still having difficulties understanding why we collectively as Canadians can't push back 
as aggressively as the Australians have? This, this I think, is one of these questions that doesn't seem to have a, a clear answer, in, in, and especially, I think, because what we have seen disclosed in Canada in the last few months is, is of an order of magnitude more detailed um, and, and more insightful in terms of the scale and reach of Chinese efforts to interfere in Canadian democracy. Um, there were a number of instances that were of concern in Australia, but nothing compared to what we've, what we've learned here in the last few months. And, and yet we have not seen the same sort of uh, response here. Even getting past the elections just for a moment, uh, the allegations of election interference last uh, uh, two election cycles. Uh, I mean, I look at, uh, to me, in some ways, that's important. But what's just as important is when you look at critical minerals, and we're going to be focusing on that issue tomorrow on this show, you know, what is the, uh, what kind of ability do foreign nationals or foreign companies have to buy into our mining industry, number one? What is the uh, conversation we should be having when it comes to joint research projects with our major universities when it comes to science and technology with China? I think those opportunities, that conversation is also lost, never mind just the political uh, conversation. In many ways, the ability to, for, for foreign companies foreign companies to invest in our natural resources or the ability to share valuable, valuable science and technology research is even more important when you look at the 21st century. And, and, and again, I mean, on the university issue in particular, this is an area where we have seen uncharacteristically Canada's intelligence services speaking publicly about their concerns over the last number of years and, and sort of having open dialogues with universities about their concerns, about the areas in which uh, there were the troubling possibility of, of Canadian uh, research being used by the Chinese state, in some case being uh, co-developed with researchers from China who are actually members of Chinese military research institutions who are coming to Canada using different cover names of, 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 those, of those institutions. And, and yet, you know, the, the, the response to that has been slow as well. It, it's a, it's a really is amazing that it wasn't too long ago we were having a conversation on whether or not our 5G infrastructure in this country uh, should be built in, in conjunction with uh, Huawei. So there's a lot to still discuss, certainly, in and around this conversation. Nathan, as always, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, recently you would have heard of doctors in Surrey Memorial Hospital's emergency room sending an open letter to government and the public calling the situation in BC's most busiest emergency room a crisis. Now, in the letter, the doctor said that the public are not aware of the unsafe conditions in the emergency room and that patients were dying preventable deaths at SMH. Now, physicians did not include their names in that letter. Well, today, one of those doctors is speaking out publicly. Dr. Urbane Ip is an emergency room physician at Surrey Memorial. He has also served as the medical director of the hospital from 2002 to 2010. He is also a clinical assistant professor at UBC. Today, he is sharing the story of emergency room doctors at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Dr. Ip, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be with you. Uh, Doctor, can you describe what the emergency room looks like today as a physician and what you are seeing and what you are hearing and what you're up against? So um, I worked uh, with the uh, Surrey emergency uh, for a long time, since 1992, 30 years. That's a long time. And um, I must say that that Surrey emergency, you know, for, for the, all the experience I have with Surrey, we always 
have congestion. We never not have congestion. We always have people waiting for bed uh, in the uh, uh, when we admit them, waiting for them to see the doctor, uh, waiting to go up to the ward. So why is um, what is the crisis now? What is the difference? Now, can I, uh, um, Jeff, can I explain to you what the normal process of admission is? Absolutely. Like when you, so when you, you know, the normal process is, let's say somebody has a pneumonia, they come in and they triage and depends on how sick they are, they, they might go into the emergency within minutes and uh, because they're so sick and the uh, emergency physician see them in appropriate area, in the appropriate uh, place, and, um, and, and do the emergency care, uh, decided to admit them to hospital. Uh, we call the admit, admitting doctor. Most of the time it's called hospitalist, and the hospitalist is a house doctor that admit them to the ward. And then the emergency physician um, has finished their job. Uh, and assuming that uh, patient is going to be taken care of, go to the ward, and he go and see the next patient. That's the, the best scenario. So um, explain why suddenly the escalation of crisis. Um, now, a good day in the hospital is 90% occupancy, meaning 90% of the beds are being occupied. Um, we, but most of the time in Surrey, we have over 100% occupancy. But that's, that's, we, we cope with that all the time. Um, the main problem over the last many months is we're having um, so-called uh, house doctor shortage. Like the hospitalist is a negotiating contract with the, with the province or with Health, Fraser Health. Uh, plus, they don't have enough um, um, human resources to, to, um, to fill all the shifts uh, that, that, that they need to fill. So um, you understand majority of the admitted patients are taken care of by these hospitals who take care of them throughout the patient stay. Now, the combination of these two problems, not enough acute care bed, which we always have, mm -hmm. but with not enough hospitals escalated this crisis to a boiling point. How long, so have, doctors, how long have doctors been raising this issue with administration? So... so this problem um, has been uh, escalated to the leadership probably since um, you know when COVID, when the COVID um, uh, um, epidemic kind of winding down. So it's been months and months uh, that we've been escalating to the leadership um, that we we tell the leadership that. Uh, uh, we have congestion, um, we have sick patients that is being admitted to the hospital, and these sick patients, after being admitted, not able to go to the ward because the hospitalists cannot see them for 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, they have nobody to take care of them, other than the nurses, and the nurses are excellent. And it ends up that there's two problems, when they cannot go to the ward, you know what happened, these patients will be lingering in the emergency department and we cannot see new sick patients. Now you can imagine, uh, as 
these emergency physicians, when they go home and they go home and they are worried about their patient being, with, they be admitted to the hospital, that some of them will not be seen for 48 hours. And never mind about the medical legal uh, aspect that they are still the only physician that have seen them, but they are worrying about the patient. It's not a good feeling. It's, uh, you know, they are physicians that keep calling the hospital, how is my patient, how is my patient. That's a terrible scenario. And, and the morale of this group of physicians is right on the bottom right now. Uh, since this story broke, are you seeing any new uh, programs, any new attempt by uh, administration or the Ministry of Health to improve the situation for uh, emergency uh, doctors? So we know that, like, emergency physicians would know that this is a complex problem. The problem, to, to solve this problem, um, we need hospitals. There's no other other way, but we we, we can deal with the well. I, I shouldn't say we, the congestion is one thing, but we need people. We need people, so they need to finish with the you know negotiating the contract with the hospitalists, so that they can hire uh, hospitalists uh, to, to so that these patients will be taken care of within hours of. Uh, after they admit it. That's the only solution, and, 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 and now there's no such solution coming. But regardless, we understand that. I think the, the physicians are very smart. They know that it's not easy to be a medical administration. These are, if these are easy problems to solve, it's already been solved. So it's, it's very complex. But the physicians want to be transparent with the public. The problem is that uh, for instance, when the emergency physician wants to make a poster to displace in the waiting room of the emergency, um, to say that, to tell the public that we are experiencing critical staffing shortage and congestion, wait time might be significant delay, please be patient. The poster was not allowed by the Fraser Health leadership. For instance, Another example, a few ER physicians have been reprimanded because they, uh, they document in the patient's chart that they say because of resource restraint, they might be compromised care. They, they want to document it to protect themselves and they get reprimanded. So now I know that leadership or the CEO said there's no get order given by the leadership regarding no, not to communicate with, to the public. They, she, nobody said that. Nobody has a get order. But I do remember at one point that one of the VP told the physician that I don't want you guys to go to the public without going through Fraser Health uh, Communication Department. And they say that we will have a media campaign to tell the public. But so far, there's, I don't see, nobody see any media campaign, campaign to, um, it's not realized. That campaign is not coming. So that really forced that, that group of physicians to send out that letter that you all have read. Mm -hmm. 
about warning the public the crisis that we have. We are speaking to Dr. Urbane Ip. He's an emergency room physician uh, in Surrey, uh, filling us in on some of the challenges uh, doctors there are, are dealing with, significant challenges, which is impacting, obviously, their uh, ability to provide care uh, for uh, patients. Uh, Dr. Ip, um, you were going through some of the challenges that physicians have been dealing with for a long time. Is part of the problem just the fact that Government has not stayed up with population growth as well in Surrey. I mean, if you compare the city of Vancouver and all the hospitals they have, from St. Paul's to Vancouver to Children's to Women's, uh, and compared to what Surrey has, that this has been part of the problem that governments, uh, through many, many years, have just not stayed up with the population growth in Surrey. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, South of the Fraser River, we are always uh, doing catch-up. I don't think Syria have enough sewage pipe <laughs> to serve the population. Uh, and, and it's just that um, uh, uh, the depth base, like per thousand people, I think we are, re- uh, we are really uh, quite a bit lower than, than coastal health. Um, we need to, to catch up. I mean, I'm, I live in Surrey. And I work in the Surrey Hospital. I have lots of loyalty to the hospital. I love this hospital. I was the medical director of the hospital. I was the clinical director of the emergency. Um, and I was, and now I'm, I'm just a physician so working in the hospital and, and in the community. And I have a lot of doubt, um, and I have a lot of worries if I have to send my loved one to the hospital right now. And that's not a good feeling. That's a terrible feeling uh, when I cannot rely on my own um, hospital that's serving my own community. Um, I, need to, I think we need the government to really, really catch up on the funding, especially, for instance, in Surrey, if you have an MI, if you have a heart attack, we have to send them somewhere to get the best care. And that's not right. And I really think that the government have to have to uh, catch up. What convinced you to speak up? I mean, I know doctors sent out that letter, but uh, you're actually making yourself available. You are very passionate about this issue. What convinced you that you need to speak out? Well, I think, well, the group of physicians that I work with is an unbelievable uh, group of physicians. They are compassionate, they are dedicated. Uh, uh, to their patient and to the hospital. Uh, they love their job. But to, it's not easy to speak out and individuals say that, you know, I'm worried that, you know, they might be, you know, uh, I'm making, you know, leadership might be mad at me and something might happen to me. They are afraid of their job. Um, I, know, I know that might not be true. Uh, so I said that, look, I've worked in here for 30 years. Um, I, uh, I'm at the end of my career, but I, I'm not retiring yet. And I really love this hospital. And I said, I'll be, I'll be the face of, of, of the group and, and come and talk to you, Jeff, mm-hmm. about this. And I thank you for, for the forum you gave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Ip, uh, one quick question here. So obviously the immediate need is more hospitalists. What, what, Final words would you want to say to our elected officials? Because ultimately, that's where it's going to, the, the real will has to come from to make these changes. What would you want to say to them directly? Please 
make everything possible to attract more physicians to Surrey Memorial Hospital and and make sure the funding uh, increase your funding so that we can have a full service for our citizen. Dr. Ip, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeff. If you're listening to the show yesterday, uh, in around this time, uh, BC Ferries already had their website and app back up, but it took till about three o'clock yesterday afternoon to have the uh, website and app up and running after hours long outage uh, on Monday. A lot of frustrated um, uh, customers. Uh, you heard some of that on social media. Uh, Global BC also went out to uh, the various terminals, main terminals, uh, to get people's thoughts in regards to how long they had been waiting. Take a listen. It's still uh, a little crazy. <laughs> and I tried to look to make sure the ferry was on time before we left home, and it was, I got nothing. This morning, trying to access my uh, my check-in details to get on the ferry, I uh, wasn't able to access it. I mean, I didn't expect it. It is very poor timing. Now, uh, it was quite interesting. I also received uh, emails uh, personally in regards to the long waits. In one case, I think it was a customer who waited uh, seven hours uh, and uh, was very frustrated, of course. And some folks, look, the app worked. It worked for them. They were fine. But a lot of frustrated folks yesterday, especially when an app and the website go down uh, during uh, a long weekend when we know BC Ferries is going to be very busy. But joining me now to talk a little bit about yesterday and the broader issues of uh, some of the challenges BC Ferries has is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Uh, good afternoon, Richard. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. Hey, good to chat. And uh, I want to get to the fixed link and a bridge to the island. And, and I know, yeah, I think you want to talk about that uh, as well. Uh, first and foremost, did you think it was going to be as bad as it is? When you look, listen to folks today, you get a sense of, yeah, there was a huge backlog yesterday. Yeah, it could have been worse. Though, and I think this is the first test for new CEO Nicholas Jimenez. He's come out today, done a series of interviews, apologizing for the inconvenience, explaining the technical meltdown, vowing to do better. All of those are good signs because in the past, Jazz, as you know, we've had uh, heads of crown corporations who have been unwilling to be publicly accountable uh, when it comes to system shutdowns. Uh, we had that long-standing issue uh, at TransLink when there were SkyTrain problems. Getting accountability there was nearly impossible. We've seen this before with previous BC Ferries administration. So at least it's one hurdle clear that Jimenez is willing to come forward and say, you know, we screwed up here. Uh, This was not good uh, and we are going to fix it. In terms of how bad things were yesterday, it was rough. Technical problems always lead to that, but it's largely rough for those walking on. I think a lot of those people who were driving on didn't have the same challenges because largely their reservations were made and, uh, you know, you need to make reservations, especially now on a long weekend or you're going to be waiting a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Now, yesterday you and I talked a little bit about um, the ferry system and you really raised the issue of just the incredible growth of uh, the Metro Vancouver area, but also the population uh, on on Vancouver Island. Uh, You had brought up the issue that there's still a struggle to, to hire more employees to the point where, you know, was it 80 people you said yesterday, 80 people just to run the buffet? Yeah, and, that, and that's what Ferry's estimates. It's a huge burden to do all of these operations, to run the vessel, to provide the customer service, to do the maintenance, 
Uh, and all of that uh, requires, in some cases, very specific skills. Mm. Now, you and I had uh, just a, didn't have much time. We talked a little bit about a fixed link to the to the island, a bridge essentially. Uh, and uh, you, after the program, sent me a link to you know a variety of reports that uh, the BC government has looked at. Walk me through a little bit in regards to the pros and cons of a bridge. Yeah. So the pros, obviously, uh, would be how easy it could be that uh, there would be uh, it could run 24 hours. Uh, it could be direct. Uh, you'd have no issues in terms of waiting. There'd be no capacity issues. Those are the key, clear pros. Cons, there are many, Jess. <laughs> cost, <laughs> cost is one of them. So the estimate from the B.C. government and this reports on the B.C. government website is $15 billion to build the span itself. And that is a low-end estimate based on a few years ago. Then there are those maintenance costs that would come every single year. And those uh, would be about $90 million. It would likely be told, and the estimates from the province, Jazz, mm-hmm. is that toll would be six to ten times higher than the current ferry fares for a walk-on passenger. So uh, it would set you back quite a bit to travel the span. That's just cost. Then there's the physical challenges. The fact that it's in a seismic zone, uh, there are potential marine slope instabilities all along the area. There are extreme wave conditions. In some cases, waves as high as seven meters. There are wind speeds, jazz that gust to 180 kilometers an hour. There are major ships that pass through the area all the time, so a floating bridge cannot withstand the impact, obviously, of a vessel. There are the maintenance potential issues, and a bridge across the Georgia Strait would be subject to snow, ice, fog. You think it's bad going across the Port Man during those ice bombs? Yeah. Imagine going across this span, across the Georgia Strait, and then the idea of how you even rescue a car that may be stuck in the middle. Uh, I, I just think the challenges are far greater than whatever convenience it may bring, although I dream about the idea of being able to just pop over uh, to the mainland. But I, I think it's just, it, it seems impossible based on all these concerns. Do, do you remember that old uh, SoCred minister, Pat McGear? Yeah, I do. I yeah, do. yeah. Uh, he's from a different era, different time. And I remember talking to Pat McGear, and uh, he was a strong proponent of building uh, a bridge to Vancouver Island, and to the point where you could hopscotch over some Gulf Islands. Now, it's tough to you have to get approval, deal with local issues and concerns, easier said than done. Uh, but Pat was a, a big proponent. In fact, he had a a huge model um, made of a, of a bridge from the island to Vancouver. He kept it in his basement, to my understanding, many years for many years. Uh, but we found some uh, uh, comments from him in regards to cost, in regards to the challenges of potential, you know, being in a seismic earthquake area and the challenges there. Take a listen to what Pat McGear had to say to some of the uh, naysayers. You build a bridge, it'll last several hundred years. Uh, you build a ferry and it gets outmoded and has to be replaced. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, you know, to figure all this out. (laughs) This is the only sensible thing to do for the future. Uh, And because it's the only sensible thing, as soon as we have a sensible government, we'll do it. It's going to be raised. Earthquakes? The ones that are in danger are the real bridges that have already been built, not a floating bridge, for heaven's sakes. Cost? It's going to last for 200 years. You want to pay it off over 100 years? Pay it off over 100 years. A ferry? Oh, it's going to last 30 years. 
That was uh, Pat McGeer, mm-hmm. former uh, minister. So, you know, he was always passionate about the bridge. But, you know, the one the question I do have to ask, when you think about, you know, board tunnels and you look at earthquake-prone areas like Japan, so why do they have board tunnels? Why in places like, uh, you know, Finland and many of these other countries where there are fjords, they have this amazing transportation system with bridges uh, and, and many other systems, uh, cable-state bridges as well, floating bridges, fixed-linked, all of it. They're somehow able to do it on the engineering side, number one. I'm not saying we can't do it on the engineering side. But they also spend the money, whether it's a public-private partnership, whether it's yeah. dollars spent. Uh, I'm not sure why – and I understand the cost, $15 billion. Okay, let's double that for a moment. $30 billion over 100 years, that, that, you know, that could be done, quite frankly, number one. And we were spending, what, $20 billion on Site C? Uh, uh, the Trans-Canada Pipeline, I think initially was uh, 4 then it went to $8 billion. Now we're talking probably $20 billion by the time we're done. These things do happen. They do go over budget, and that's fine. But I just don't understand why in other countries they can build these amazing, amazing infrastructure projects. And we always seem to be hesitating over here uh, in British Columbia. It's a big philosophical question. They have a section here in the board tunnel area. They talk about the Seikan Tunnel in Japan, 54 kilometers long, mm-hmm. cost $7 billion back in 1988 in U.S. dollars. The tunnel's the most famous between the U.K. and France. That was $15 billion. But construction of a board tunnel under Georgia Strait would take place below water 365 meters deep and in thick, soft sediments, creating extreme pressures during construction. The depth of both the water and the sediment would require a tunnel over 50 kilometers in length. For these reasons, a board tunnel is not considered a viable option. But it's part of a larger philosophical question of why not invest in these things? High-speed rail along the coast to Seattle and Portland. We've mm-hmm. explored it. We're waiting and waiting. Every year we wait on that jazz, it becomes exponentially more expensive. Canadians struggle with this idea of big spending on infrastructure, whereas other countries, they just go ahead and do it. And I think your sense is the same as mine. We should start encouraging that stuff from British Columbia because these are things that can be used for the future. Last point on this, yeah. MLA Trevor Helford, BC United MLA, just texted me. He said the other issue potential with a crossing would be going through U.S. waters. Uh, so that could lead to some uh, diplomatic challenges as well. Uh, you know, a board tunnel that touches on the U.S. may not be a big issue, but it's a jurisdictional issue that would have to be discussed as well if, if that tunnel conversation ever becomes serious. But you could hopscotch through some of these uh, Gulf Islands. Not everything has to be a board tunnel, and, and maybe it doesn't go to Victoria. It goes to Nanaimo or somewhere in between, yep. and just as long as it gets you to the island. I think there's ways to get through that. And you're right, if, if it's a board tunnel, I don't think you have a security issue. And look, if France and, and, and England uh, can build a tunnel, I'm not sure why we can't speak to a friendly neighbor and figure this stuff out as well. I mean, there's been talk, obviously, the Confederation Bridge. There is, of course, uh, you know, in the U.S., we've talked about sharing costs over a, for, for, for the U.S. around Detroit as well. All of that is part of the broader conversation. I, I just think we always hesitate. I'm not sure why we don't think big enough. Yes, cost is an issue, but let's talk about this and get it done. I'm not saying the ferry system is bad. I mean, I used it a lot when I was in MLA. The service is good. The people are good. And, and, and I'm a supporter of our uh, of our uh, public institutions. But, you know, I, sometimes I think we would, we just need to think big sometimes, and we don't do that uh-huh. here in, in British Columbia. Maybe it's just my frustration, but but I wanted to hear from you. $15 billion, let's double it, $30 billion, but I still think it's worth it when you're stuck in a ferry let's line. Let's think big. I agree. It, those are the sort of things that people... 
remember, this public infrastructure is important for us, and, and we've had a challenge. We couldn't even get a billion-dollar museum off the ground, Jeff. I'm not sure about a $15 billion Just think of <laughs> your Ottawa senators coming to town, you watching the game, and then and driving home That's at the end of it. a billion dollars to buy that team. Yeah, but that would be a great way to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Chad. I remember uh, many years ago now, uh, you know, coming home after uh, work on a Friday, and usually I'd make a beeline to the local blockbuster, uh, rent a movie. That's just the usual Friday nights. Now, that's uh, a few years ago, and many have said, well, uh, the movie business, or certainly the video rental business, uh, went away a long time ago. You can blame streaming, you can blame many other technologies. But in Victoria, there was a video store uh, that was open and loved by many and is still loved by many. But Pick-A-Flick uh, has announced that it'll be shutting down later this year. Joining us now is the owner of Pick-A-Flick Video, Kent Bendel. Kent, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, why are you shutting down? I think, I think the reasons are pretty obvious to most <laughs> people. Um, I'm a video store in 2023. It just... It doesn't make sense. Um, I've been going for as long as I can, but various reasons, obvious and not so obvious, have led me to this conclusion that it's just time to shut her up. Well, I got to tell you, out of admiration, a video store open in 2023 is still amazing because many of them shut down even well, way no, longer. Well, no, I always tell people I'm an anomaly when they ask how how have you done it. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and and the store opened in like 1983 in Victoria, so it's been running continuously for 40 years as a video store, which is pretty amazing. How have you kept it running over the last five, seven, eight, nine years? Like, how, what is the reasoning for people to say, you know what, I need to, I still want to go to the, my little video store to pick up a movie um a couple reasons number one well maybe not number one but selection we have over twenty-five thousand titles whereas somewhere like netflix has three thousand i think mm-hmm. we have stuff you just can't find anywhere and plus it's a community hub it's where people come and not just you know just to get a movie but you know it's that interaction with the clerk with other people getting movies what do you got there what's good what have you seen mm-hmm. it's a whole social element to it that I think people really miss nowadays. So were you still purchasing newer movies as well? Yeah, I just got like Cocaine Bear in today for rental. <laughs> so I have, I have stuff like from silent films, like right up to the latest releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a retailer, um, how much time do you spend educating yourselves about specific movies, their content, perhaps giving your own movie reviews? Do customers rely on you for your, uh, your advice? Definitely. When they come in, you know, they they want to know what's good and what's bad. And if I've seen something that's garbage, I, I have no problem letting them know. <laughs> but, you know, it's it. And nowadays, there's just so much coming out all the time. It's kind of hard to keep up with everything. Mm. Uh, there's certainly convenience, one would argue, with uh, streaming today, uh, whether it's Definitely. on your phone or, 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 a, or a big screen TV. Do you think we're losing something in regards to the movie watching experience by you know, accepting and embracing technology like we have? Definitely. There's, um, uh, I mean, convenience is great, and it's it's my number one, you know, enemy here. But uh, as great as the streaming and that is, we are losing, I mean, we're losing access, first of all, to like thousands of films, tens of thousands of films probably, that are just unaccessible. And then you're also losing that physical, that human interaction of going into a store and, and the knowledge that you're keeping a small neighborhood store afloat and you're, you know, impacting the, uh, the neighborhood. There's so much. It's like a whole 
you know, little ecosystem of, of itself. And when that's gone, it's, it's going to be missed. Uh, do you, and part of me always thinks that, you know, because some of these movies, yes, there are less movies they're offering on streaming. Uh, but the fact that you have so much, you have such a easy access to them uh, with a remote, you can just go through whatever you need to go through. You're not mm. as committed to a movie. It's almost like film is art, but we've kind of made it disposable to a certain degree. Or it's very easy to sort of just slough off a film without being committed to it. Like you've gone to the movie, if you've gone to the store rented that movie, driven there, driven home, and you're going to watch it because you, you put some effort into it rather than streaming is easy, right? Exactly. I had that exact same conversation with, with a uh, customer earlier today. He's like, I came here and I rented this movie. I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch it because I put the commitment in. Whereas if you're on TV streaming and scrolling around, you're going to watch 10 minutes of something, five minutes of something else. You don't have that commitment mm-hmm. because you didn't put the commitment into selection. Are there particular movies that are more popular than others in regards to people want to rent them? Is it Does the rom-com do better than, uh, let's say, an action flick or whatever it may be? Are there particular movies that generally do very well when it comes to rentals? Uh, the, the number one rentals are always like the franchise stuff, the Harry Potter films, the Lord of the Rings films, the Marvel films, the Star Wars films. Um, and for us, uh, underlying that are like strong independent comedies and things like Waking Ed Divine, you know, British films, mm-hmm. um, Waiting for Guffman, independent American comedy, the sort of lesser known films, but uh, everything rents still. Is there a particular, what are your favorite films? I'm very curious because you've, you would have seen everything. You're in around movies all yeah. the time. What do, you, what do you like? Right now, my, my favorite thing is like stuff from the 1930s. Really? Pre pre Hayes Code Hollywood stuff, like comedies and musicals. I just find them very refreshing hmm. and so different than stuff today. Yeah, I, I could imagine. Um, in regards to the, the, the titles that you have, 25,000 titles, uh, the store's lease is up, uh, I think, is in the end, At of, the end sep- of September. end of September. What do you do with 25,000 titles? Well, ideal situation is somebody wants to come along and buy the whole collection and keep it accessible uh, to the public. Um, if that doesn't happen, there's going to be a really big sale at the end of uh, the summer. Wow. So do you think you can sell it all all in one? I don't know. It's such an impressive collection. I, I don't mean to brag, but uh, it's something else. And it's, you know, when people see it and people come from other cities and countries they're like overwhelmed by what i have and what's here so ideally you know someone wants to keep that if it's an organization or what wants to keep that together and uh like i said accessible for people to experience and well, enjoy well maybe the victoria library system uh, should drop by and, and take a look uh, at what there's there's lots of talk going on with lots of people right now so uh Good. i'm i'm sure something will transpire over the summer so well, Kent, thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a shame that uh, you have to shut down at the end of September, but it, you've played such a vital part, uh, uh, a vital part of the community there. I'm wishing you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.